Tuesday at 2 p.m. Episode 56 for the week ending June 9, 2017, the Who's on First edition. Fatigue Day and I have a wide-ranging discussion on some of the week's top compliance-related stories. We discuss the Kokesh case at the U.S. Supreme Court, which is significant for SEC enforcement of the FCPA around the penalty of profit disgorgement. Jay talks about Trevor McFadden's decision to leave the Department of Justice for the federal bench. Uh, we also hit on uh, Wei Chen's contract not being renewed, but her position is open for job applicants, and we link to the position linkage in the show notes. Also, Andrew Wiseman is leaving the uh, as the head of the fraud section to go to the pros- special prosecutor staff. Talk about uh, former Petrotago General Counsel Gregory Wiseman, who is banned from SEC practice. Uh, Wiseman was previously disbarred in two states, Pennsylvania and New York. We discussed Matt Stevenson's uh, consideration of what a Walmart settlement might look like. We talk about, uh, again, the federal judge who sentenced Sam Mabibi, the bagman for Oxzip, to uh, prison and his uh, discussion and uh, questioning of prosecutors about why no individuals were uh, from Oxzip were prosecuted. Jay previews his weekend report, which I think you will find extraordinarily interesting. Uh, He had a lot of uh, great feedback and comments from his prior uh, weekend report on compliance as a business advantage, so he uh, takes another look at it. Uh, Also, I uh, continue to talk about the release of my new book, 2016, The Year in Corporate FCPA Enforcement, the only book that takes uh, a look at uh, the most significant year in FCPA enforcement ever. So I link to the uh, purchase location on the show notes as well. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week at FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, welcoming you to a special weekend edition of This Week in FCPA for the week ending June 9th, 2017, the Who's on First edition. As always, I'm joined by my cohort and co-host, Jay Rosens. Mr. Monitors, Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It's uh, kind of fun to actually be talking to you on a, on a languid Saturday afternoon. It's uh, it's a nice day. We, we don't have any uh, breaking news, and uh, we had to change the name of the podcast, but I think we're going to be okay moving forward. I, I agree. I agree. So um, for those of you who are wondering about my uh, fearless faux, 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 faux prediction, it's now faux, 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 faux one. So uh, I'm still uh, still behind the, um, the Warriors, but uh, I watched the game, of course, last night, and I saw the greatest first one quarter of basketball in the first quarter I think I've ever seen in my life. So uh, kudos to the Cavaliers. They brought the uh, AAA game that uh, LeBron James talked about and scored 49 points in a quarter, which um, is pretty amazing. So, uh, Jay, uh, also um, not amazing, but uh, equally in the AAA category, we had a case from the U.S. Supreme Court, which really affects FCPA enforcement from the Securities and Exchange Commission. And that, of course, was the Kokesh decision. Um, This case really revolved around um, the issue of whether or not profit disgorgements are properly classified as a penalty or if they were something else. And the reason that was important is if they were a penalty, then the um, 
five-year statute of limitations comes into play. And what that means is that any conduct more than five years before the claim is made cannot be counted against the company company for profit disgorgement. Uh, I took a look at this really from the angle of uh, lessons to be learned, obviously. And uh, I looked at uh, our great resource, the FCPA blog, who keeps a top 10 of profit disgorgement awards. And <clears throat> they are really stunning. Uh, embedded within FCPA, overall fines and penalties in the top 10 were from 350 million of Siemens to 98 from Technique. So um, this is not chicken feed we're talking about here. And uh, what this means is that uh, if uh, companies had uh, FCPA violative conduct more than five years out, it cannot be counted against them. They cannot be prosecuted for it under uh, the uh, Securities and Exchange Act of 1934, and they can't be uh, penalized either in the form of direct penalty or be required to give up ill-gotten gain because it's no longer ill-gotten. It's outside the statute of limitations period. So a very interesting decision uh, by the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. I think the commentators, the commentariat of profit disgorgement wisdom, uh, most notably Mark Bone at Miller & Chevalier, uh, we're not surprised by this decision. Uh, nevertheless, it's the first time the Supreme Court has specifically answered this question. There had been a circuit split, and indeed, even uh, the U.S. Um, Internal Revenue Service had had to weigh in on this uh, for uh, tax uh, deduction reasons. So lots of interest in the case. Uh, it's not clear um, how this will affect companies' ability to uh, deduct profit disgorgements um, from um, their tax tax returns. Uh, so there may be some uh, interesting um, developments there. And uh, Mark Bone, who I had earlier this week on a podcast, really raised the, uh, I thought, very interesting issue of what this will do to the decision to self-disclose. Meaning if, uh, if your conduct was four and a half years ago, uh, companies may decide to just simply uh, bunk, hunker down, remediate, and not self-disclose and wait till uh, after the five-year statute of limitations is run in the hope that uh, not only will they not be caught, but um, even if they are caught, uh, the conduct won't get them in trouble or the penalty will be significantly less. Really, the um, I would say the difficulty with that is uh, one on the decision to self-disclose goes contrary, directly contrary to the uh, Yates Memorandum and the uh, FCPA pilot program, number one. And number two is when you look at profits, it's typically not at one fixed point in time in a corporation. So that if uh, you and I reached an agreement on a contract, we might sign that contract today. But uh, if you're delivering a service to me uh, as a, you know, a shoe store owner, as a record store owner, as a uh, monitor, or as a translator, those services might be delivered in the future, and my payment would be at some point past that. So um, uh, it's not clear to me, uh, even if a, a legal action was taken, um, the results of that action might be somewhere down the ro ro road so that uh, you could still have a profit disgorgement because the actual payment or the profits made uh, would be more than uh, within the five-year statute. Nevertheless, very significant case. Lots of commentary on it. Uh, I wrote about it. Uh, really, the best uh, legal analysis I saw was from a lawyer named Saskia Zandia, who's also at Miller Chevalier. 
And uh, once again, Mark Bone, uh, in addition to my podcast, he wrote about it in the FCPA blog. So we'll have all of that in the show notes for our listeners. And, and I want to encourage everyone to uh, uh, not only read uh, the show note information that I'm going to put forward, but also the decision itself is only 14 pages. So it's quite short and uh, probably should also note it was a 9-0 decision. And in this rarefied world, uh, we rarely get as strong a message as that from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. So um, anything kind of from uh, your angle on uh, this or how it might fit into uh, what you guys do as Mr. Monitors? Uh, I, I don't think that um, there, there's anything from our perspective because we are going to be brought in after some type of uh, resolution has been reached. But I, I just wanted to echo um, – you know, that 9-0 decision by SCOTUS. And it just uh, seems that the way things are in the country right now, to have that uh, complete agreement across ideological grounds that this is the way uh, disgorgements uh, should be treated going forward, I think, like you said, it's going to really factor into individual companies' calculus. And uh, whereas in the past, I think the FCPA pilot program had encouraged companies to uh, – waive statute of limitations to get in and to be considered for leniency. Uh, to your point earlier, if you're at the four and a half year mark, uh, you've got to decide, do you, um, you know, do you come forward or, or do you roll the dice for the next uh, 180 days? So uh, there's, there should be lots of uh, interesting uh, fallout from this uh, matter. So next up, we had a um, really interesting article by our good friend and colleague, uh, Matt Kelly. And Matt wrote about uh, the decision that, uh, or the announcement that Trevor McFadden is going to leave the Department of Justice for the federal bench. He's going to become a judge. So um, obviously listeners of this blog are well aware, or podcast, I should say, and readers of my blog are well aware of Trevor McFadden. He made some extraordinarily uh, uh, strong remarks about FCPA enforcement and uh, compliance programs in uh, March and April that uh, we've uh, extensively reported and talked about. Uh, but Matt really talked about uh, in terms of uh, several key uh, folks around uh, FCPA are leaving the Department of Justice. Andrew Wiseman, the head of the fraud section, which uh, the FCPA unit is under or within, is leaving to go to the special uh, prosecutor staff. And, of course, we had the announcement this week that Wei Chin's contract will not be renewed. So, Jay, I have not had the chance to ask you publicly if you're going to apply for the job. But if you are, I've linked to the uh, uh, application portal on our show notes. So uh, I'm sure that uh, they would definitely take um, someone uh, uh, with your qualifications and make a very, very strong look at uh, your candidacy. So um, really very interesting um, kind of who's on first or – Who's going to be on first? Uh, we should, uh, following up on your last point about the current political climate, uh, just because you're nominated for a federal bench doesn't mean you're going to get it, number one. And number two, it means the Senate has to confirm you. And at this point, we haven't seen the Senate do anything except confirm Neil Gorsuch for the Supreme Court. Um, so whether or not the Senate gets to this uh, appointment during 2018 or 17, rather, is an open question. All appointments expire at the end of uh, the term. So, uh, but um, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, a sinking ship that people are leaving or 
Uh, it's logical. Do you have this kind of turnover? McFadden had only been there, obviously, since the new administration came in in January. But um, any kind of thoughts on where that might be taking us? Well, I think how I read Matt's article was, and I don't want to butcher the gentleman's name, but uh, do you know how to say the name of uh, Brian and the gentleman who's coming in from Kirkland and Ellis? And I think, uh, what would you say, Benkowski? Is that how you'd say it? Maybe. So anyhow, the, the way I read it is that he's coming in as uh, Mr. McFadden's boss. And so it looks like uh, Mr. McFadden wanted to jump ship and was able to uh, get nominated for that uh, vacant uh, judge position in Virginia. So um, I, I think that, you know, talking about the politics there, um, some people uh, do not see that this is a long term uh, position to be in at the DOJ and uh with lots of pressures to lawyer up and worrying about um, whether or not there is the proper tone at the top, as uh, Wei Ching seemed to indicate. I, I think that there's uh, it's a very interesting time at DOJ, and you and I were talking offline before we got on this call that um, there's a certain uh, inertia there. And uh, if you have prosecutors who are fired, and you don't have people taking their place, it's pretty hard to uh, move forward on cases and resolutions. So it's almost seems to be that uh, things might be just uh, grinding to a halt by um, some somewhat by neglect and some not by the Senate having uh, more pressing uh, engagements on their mind. So let's uh, leave a little time at the end to talk about Wei Chen and maybe move to uh, some other topics that came up this week. Uh, our friends uh, Gregory Wiseman and Petro Tiger were in the news uh, yet again, and frankly, other than Petro Tiger getting a declination, I can't think of any news uh, around this whole matter, sordid matter that uh, was good. But uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission banned um, former Petro Tiger uh, General Counsel Gregory Wiseman from practicing uh, before uh, it. Uh, for two years. Uh, Wiseman had previously been disbarred in two states. That's pretty impressive. Uh, in New York in 2014 and Pennsylvania in 2015. And um, Wiseman, uh, I'm not sure we really, uh, it was before we started this week in FCPA, I think. So Wiseman was the uh, general counsel who uh, agreed to be wired up and tried to get the uh, president of the company to admit to bribery and corruption. Uh, the case went to uh, to trial. The president took the case to trial. Wiseman pled out. And um, uh, the president's name was uh, Joseph Siegelman. Um, and um, the judge really found Wiseman to be a uh, not credible witness, uh, I think is uh, probably as uh, delicate and uh, uh, civil a way to put it as possible. And the prosecution of uh, Siegelman collapsed. Uh, based on that. So um, uh, Wiseman disbarred basically from the S or disbarred in two states and now banned in front of the SEC. Um, Jay, we had a very interesting article by Matthew Stevenson, um, our colleague uh, at Harvard, and he took a look at or rather speculated on what a Walmart settlement looked like. And I guess the thing that intrigued me was a couple of uh, points that he raised, Jay. One was um, really in his introduction he said that he was he wrote this 
uh, I guess last week, but maybe even earlier, and he was posting it while he was traveling, and he would not be able to update the story while he was traveling. And it's um, what intrigued me was that he must think that this case is literally on the settlement doorstep for, for him to, to say something like that. Now, we've heard wind of a potential settlement in the range of uh, $300 million, you know, perhaps less, um, perhaps a monitor, perhaps not. And um, uh, so I was very intrigued uh, that I wonder what would cause him to think that the settlement is really uh, uh, at the door to be signed. But uh, he took a look at it. It was very interesting um, speculation, and he admitted it was speculation. Uh, so we're going to have to see what the settlement uh, has. Was there anything in there that uh, really struck you, Jay, one way or the other? Uh, I think what's interesting is he kind of broke his analysis into two different camps. And there's one camp, which, you know, is the, the, the folks who feel that uh, the time is ripe for FCPA reform. And that would be kind of like the group from the Chamber of Commerce several years ago led by Mike McCaskey and how they came forward with wanting to have a compliance defense. And then we have uh, the camp where I think you and I uh, fit in quite uh, firmly that the FCPA is A-OK. And then there is a, an extreme version of that camp that feels that uh, the government and the um, the regulations don't go far enough in ter terms of uh, enforcing penalties and deterrence against those people who violate. So um, I think it's it's a pretty um, balanced discussion on either end. And with that, uh, you know, number being put out there of 300 million, um, there is a way to have each side come up okay, saying that, you know, uh, the company that, you know, originally they were supposedly looking at a billion dollar fine. Then there was a 600 million number put up towards the end of last year. And to settle at 300 million sounds like it's a lot of money, but it's probably a pretty good result. So from that side, the FCPA reform side would say that, you know, things worked out. Uh, the company had additional leverage. They could go back and negotiate in the government. And this is the number they came up with. Uh, the pro, uh, the con on that is that they might end up spending three times that uh, penalty in terms of investigative costs and uh, improved ethics and compliance. So that's the FCPA reform side. And on the FCPA AOK side is that um, the process was run. Uh, they came out with uh, a settlement that fit the crime or fit the uh, alleged activity, and then they moved forward. So uh, I, too, share the uh, interest in what would make uh, Matt get this article out there and, and think that there's uh, going to be an eminent settlement. So from you know what we've seen so far from an FCPA perspective, both from DOJ and um, SEC, there really has not been a lot to write about here in uh, Q1 and Q2. So, uh, you know, maybe something's going to happen in June, right? As school's getting out, we'll have to see. <laughs> perhaps so, perhaps so. Um, Jay, one other thing, uh, we may have touched on this earlier uh, last week, but I just uh, wanted to um, uh, bring it up again this week because several 
kind of uh, commentators outside of uh, the compliance space wrote about this, and it's the federal judge who sentenced Sam Abibe, uh, the bag man for Oxif. Uh, we talked about his uh, sentencing, uh, as reported by Sam Rubenfeld, but what we didn't talk about was the judge's criticism of the Department of Justice. And the judge was um, very direct. If you've ever been in front of a federal judge, you know, those guys are pretty circumspect. Uh, and when they say something directly, you know they mean it. Um, and he was, uh, I thought, highly critical of the department for bringing one individual prosecution. Uh, he asked the um, Department of Justice prosecutor uh, why there weren't additional charges uh, brought by others. And uh, the prosecutor, um, you know, put on the spot, said, well, we're working on that judge. Um, so the, I think the federal judiciary is beginning to um, raise concerns about deferred prosecution agreements, non-prosecution agreements, and, and really just the lack of uh, individual prosecutions. So where that goes, uh, we'll just have to see. Uh, does that tie into any of the points you raised about um, the inertia starting to set in? Uh, does that cause investigations not to shorten in time but lengthen in time? frankly, because the DOJ doesn't have the resources, uh, because people aren't, um, uh, 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 the new administration's not appointing uh, persons to fill these slots. Uh, where that all works into this calculus, I don't know. But uh, ne uh, nevertheless, when you have a federal judge articulating that kind of criticism, um, the wider media picked it up, and I think uh, uh, that shows its, its real true significance going forward. Well, I, I just had an image of um, the first time we actually met, if you recall, it was the um, Mayflower Hotel. And I believe you were there with uh, Volkov and each of you had your wives with you. And um, not only was it Compliance Week, but I think you were there for, um, was it the Shershot Trials? Does that sound right? Yeah. So that's got to be what, is that six years ago already? Uh, I think you're right, 2012. Yeah. So, um, you know, there, there has been a lot about a lot of people have spoken about the fact that, you know, there is not there's actually a dearth of any case law that's really happened uh, with regard to uh, FCPA prosecutions, either from a DOJ or an SEC perspective. So with uh, everybody wanting to get dragged in front of the court and willing to tell their side of the story, uh, maybe that might be something that could happen in the uh, second part of this year that maybe we we start to get some case law because, uh, you know, if, if we look at what just happened with the Supreme Court and taking a look at disgorgements, there's still a lot of the mechanism with uh, completing FCPA, uh, you know, situations that it's still being done by DPAs and NPAs. And now we've got the pilot program. So, uh Maybe uh, maybe things might shift on the other end, and we might see some court activity by the end of the year. So the um, uh, oh, do you have a, a weekend report preview for us, Jay? Well, I w I was going to go fo 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 fo, but now that's been um, that's been a little bit uh, messed up for me. So I, I think um, there's been a, a lot of response uh, on LinkedIn and a lot of people have been 
uh, very kind to take a look at my um, blog from last week, which you suggested, which is uh, using a compliant using compliance as a competitive advantage. So I thought what I would do is kind of take some of the um, feedback that I got from that and work that into a follow-on article. But uh, I, I definitely have heard from people all over the world and many different industries, um, you know, really starting to think about, you know, how is that something that they could bring to bear in their own, um, you know, corporate situations. So that's what the weekend reads looking like right now. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, one question for you in um, the, the Wall Street Journal article. Did we want to talk about the quotes from either one of the mics? You bet. Go ahead. So, well, there, you, 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 pick, you pick the first mic and I'll pick the second one. No, you take them both. <laughs> All right. Well, we have our, our uh, good friend, Mike Volkoff, who said that, uh, you know, he's been saying the same thing for years. And what the same thing is, is in terms of, uh, you know, wanting to have more individual accountability. So Volkoff said that uh, federal judges are increasingly tired of being viewed as rubber stamps to questionable prosecutorial decisions made by the Justice Department when dealing with criminal liability. The judges' complaints are significant and may trigger more concerns from the federal bench as the Justice Department relies on TPAs and NPAs and limited individual prosecutions, especially in light of the Yates memo. And actually kind of being on the uh, same page, uh, Mike Kaler, the FPA professor, said that he would say kudos to the judge based on the reported remarks. So they both seem to be on the uh, same page here. And that kind of uh, echoes what I was just talking about before that, you know, without having this uh, individual uh, liability there, there, there seems to be, uh, you know, I don't, I, they don't really seem to be getting to the root cause and to the people who are responsible for what's happening. So, uh, as we said, uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, if this gains any momentum, especially with this, uh, with with the comments by the judge. So, Jay, I wanted to spend just a few minutes talking about uh, Wei Chin and what I think she has meant to the compliance profession. I recognize that uh, her uh, social media um, postings, Twitter comments, uh, remarks to journalists have been somewhat controversial. Nevertheless, I think for the compliance profession and for the compliance professional, uh, the mark of Wei Chen uh, has been deep. It has been wide. It has been dramatic. And frankly, it's a mark that um, uh, we all should applaud. She really took the role of the chief compliance officer and put it squarely into the calculus of fines and penalties under the FCPA. And she did that in a way that uh, brought the chief compliance officer into the discussions regarding a fine and penalty, regarding a settlement, regarding um, even decisions to bring charges. And it was her uh, input and her insights that really, uh, I think, brought the the compliance uh, chief compliance officer position in the compliance profession, uh, elevating that in into that discussion. Now, that does not mean that discussion was not happening before, but it was largely happening through outside counsel. And outside counsel would meet with the Department of Justice and um, 
They would go through uh, various machinations, uh, fines, penalties, ranges, settlement negotiations. But the outside counsel are not compliance practitioners, day-to-day chief compliance officers or compliance professionals who know that the nuts and bolts of compliance. And by bringing the nuts and bolts of compliance into the discussion, I think it elevated not only the importance of our profession, but it also elevated, Jay, the importance of the compliance program. And that may be her la- our greatest lasting legacy, that the compliance program itself has become important. Once again, certainly the Department of Justice since uh, 1999, uh, we met Caffinetti through 2004, then again in 2008, uh, put out information on best practices compliance programs. We've obviously had the uh, 2012 FCPA guidance and the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program leading up to the uh, February 2017 evaluation of corporate compliance programs uh, document. But Wei Chen, uh, in the short two years or less than two years she's been with the department, has made the chief compliance officer, has made the compliance profession, and has made compliance programs more front and center to the discussions around um, uh, enforcement. And uh, I think the profession really owes her a a tip of the hat uh, for doing that. Uh, She's uh, led a discussion around uh, CCO compensation. She's led a discussion around resources to the compliance department and the compliance function of a company. Uh, She uh, initially uh, gave us some uh, metrics back in uh, December, November and December 2015 that she was going to utilize for compliance programs uh, going forward to uh, April 2016 with the FCPA pilot program. There were three prongs that uh, the Department of Justice said it would consider uh, to give a uh, reduction in finer penalty, uh, self-disclosure, extensive cooperation, and then extensive remediation. And the extensive remediation really gave uh, the compliance practitioner a very good guide of topics to self-benchmark your own compliance program. And then finally, the uh, 2017 evaluation of corporate compliance documents, 11 prongs of inquiry with 40, 40 Four separate questions, I believe, uh, that uh, compliance officers can ask themselves and of their own program and of their own senior management to help them operationalize compliance. So, uh, obviously, uh, she worked in conjunction with the Department of Justice. She worked with um, uh, Patrick Stokes while he was there. She worked with Dan Kahn, who is currently the head of the unit. Andrew Wiseman's been there the entire time. So, it's obviously a team and collaborative effort. Yet, uh, uh, Wei Chen really, I think, uh, uh, if not specifically leading that effort, was a big part of that effort. And she's really brought our profession and the compliance programs to a greater prominence at that role, or excuse me, at that level. And then now with the uh, 2017 evaluation document, we're looking at operationalizing compliance, really showing that it's a business process, memorializing what Roy Roy Snell says has been going on uh, in a discussion in his uh, uh, with his groups for 20 years. So now we have the Department of Justice representative uh, or the Department of Justice itself kind of embracing the discussion that senior compliance professions, professional leaders have been having for many years about the business process of compliance. So I just wanted to uh, really think about and uh, give a, a kudos to Wei Chin for what she has meant to our profession, what she has meant to compliance programs. And uh, I hope that the um, the department obviously is going to uh, at least consider another candidate. Um, uh, as I said, uh, you can apply for this uh, by clicking through our show notes today. Uh, and uh, I hope that uh, we continue to have this kind of 
communication, and more importantly, dialogue with the Department of Justice about what a best practices compliance program is, what their thoughts on what uh, should exist, and operationalizing compliance. I don't think I could have said it any better myself, Tom. It just uh, kind of reminds me of this uh, old cigarette ad from, I think, the uh, 70s for Virginia Slims, and it says, you've come a long way, baby. And uh, I recall many times when we would look at a, an FCPA uh, case, and it would always be about, you know, looking at the opinion release and trying to get little breadcrumbs from the DOJ on, you know, what was important in this case and what mattered. And, you know, as we look back over the last two years, uh, there's been a real codification of what is important and going from, uh, you know, the uh, guidance that was released about five years ago to the latest evaluation. Uh, we've said several times that if you're a CCO out there, and you aren't asking these questions about a type of industry area or type of business that you do or a geographic area where you conduct business, there's really no excuse for you missing the boat. So, uh, you know, kudos to Wei Chen for uh, bringing that uh, that order for really doing uh, a, a service by bringing transparency to what the DOJ is looking for from the compliance function and involving the CCO in that discussion. So, Jay, uh, I need to continue to talk about my new book, uh, 2016, The Year in Corporate Compliance, Corporate FCPA Enforcement, rather. Uh, once again, I've linked to it in the show notes. It's the uh, the only book that reviews the 2016 uh, FCPA year in enforcement, the uh, greatest year in FCPA enforcement history ever. I talk about the cases. I talk about the uh, lessons you can draw and learn from the cases. And I talk about the commentary by uh, government officials, both from the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice, about where they see uh, uh, compliance and enforcement going forward. So if you're interested in that at all, uh, please uh, check out the book. It's available through Compliance Week's uh, publishing, Sister Arc Publishing, but uh, the link's on uh, today's show notes. So, Jay, with, uh, with that, you want to take us home? Sure. So on behalf of my uh, colleague and cohort, Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, this is Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and we thank you for joining us uh, to take a look at this week in FCPA for the week ending June 9th, 2017. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to This Week in FCPA. If you have enjoyed this episode and you've listened to it on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us. It would help us in our rankings and also help us get the word out about the only weekly uh, report on FCPA and compliance-related events. Also, Jay and I would love to hear from you. You can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I'm, of course, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for joining us, and we're going to have a special belated 50th anniversary episode next week, so I hope you will join us for the festivities. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.